In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we God, amen. Share with you my own little private confession. When I, uh, when I started um, preparing for this series, um, I started preparing for it because a lot of people come and talk to me about jealousy and ask me for spiritual guidance, and I give them, I give them the advice that I know. Um, and it seemed like it was something that a lot of people struggle with, and so as, uh, as I started preparing the series more and more, I realized what I didn't know before was that I get, I get pretty jealous too sometimes. And um, what this series has done, uncomfortably, but very in a very healthy way, has kind of opened my eyes to see that uh, sometimes I also um, get really upset or really angry or really frustrated that, uh, that I don't necessarily have the things that, or the, I'm using the word things, but it can be a variety, you know, it can be much broader than that, things that I, that I want. And it just leaves me angry and upset, frustrated. Doesn't leave me with with having the thing that I want. It just leaves me angry and frustrated. And I want to thank all of you because this uh, series has been doing this series has actually been an opportunity for me to grow and for me to change. Um, and it's I've been praying for all of you and I've been praying for myself for God to heal me and for God to heal you. And for God to give us a new, a new life, a new life of thanksgiving and gratitude, a new life of celebration, celebrating the good things, whether they're in our lives or in the lives of others. So the first week we talked about just jealousy in general and it was a bit of an introduction. In the second week, we talked about how jealousy is grasping for the wind because the things that we grasp for, the things that we long for, are almost always things that are very temporary. And in fact, if we were jealous for the kingdom of God, if we were jealous for the love of God, that people would love Him and know Him more, that would almost be okay. And we're going to talk about that at the end of the series. And then last week, we talked about... Last week... We, talk, we talked about how this grasping for the wind doesn't leave us anywhere better. And that we're not the only ones who are jealous. And as we've spent, we had spent the first week, two weeks identifying our own feelings of jealousy, last week we talked about what to do about when we realize other people are jealous of us, other people are angry with us, or are upset with us because we have something that they don't have. This week, Rano Mata will carry on the series with us. But before we do that, I'm going to invite you all to stand up and we're going to sing a song and we're going to pray together. Because this isn't like an intellectual journey or an emotional journey only. It's also a spiritual journey. We're also seeking God's healing. We're seeking God to, to shine the light in our own lives right here, right now, and heal us of whatever we need healing from. So I'll invite you all to stand um, if you're physically able to. Um, and. Um, um, Marino will lead us um, singing a song asking God to give us his healing. Lord, I come, I come. 
session is move it along and I didn't quite understand why it was called that until I got to the end of preparing the session so hopefully you'll get it before I did um, so Abuna recapped for us uh, what's what we've talked about the last few weeks but I had also just a very brief recap where I just recap like one verse or quote from each of the uh, each of the sessions that helps me sort of remember what each one was about uh, so the first week was uh, people were created to be loved and things were created to be used. The reason the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. So there we learned about what's the problem with uh, jealousy uh, and uh, what happens when our love and, and uh, hate collide. Uh, in the second week, um, we heard about grasping for the wind. And uh, the verse that I used to remember that is that uh, Jesus says to uh, his disciples, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so it was, um, you know, sometimes when we're jealous for things, we're like, you know, reaching aimlessly for something that we can't really have. And, and in doing so, we don't get that thing that we want and we also feel really bad about it. And so we just need to be less preoccupied and concerned with those things that we can't have. Uh, and uh, last week, uh, the, the topic was uh, got haters, and it was where we 
learned about uh, how other people are jealous of us. Um, and there was a very nice quote from the late Bishop Epiphanios, uh, and he said, there are those who reach up to pull themselves up, uh, but the truly enlightened ones lift others up without concern for themselves. And so the response to um, others being jealous of us was uh, that we should uh, allow that, um, that jealousy that they have where they want to lift themselves up, we should help them. We should help them uh, and lift them up as well. Okay, so that brings us to this week. Uh, and I want to start off by asking you a question. What names does God give himself? Yeah, so he, there's seven names of God, actually. One of them is Yahweh, and we'll get into that. But th there's, there's a few other names that he gives himself, and we've heard some of them, and we're going to talk about one of them today. But, you know, this, whenever I hear about God's names, I always remember that famous line from Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Right? And, and whoever said that, whether it was Romeo or Juliet, I don't remember. But um, what they were trying to get at was like a name doesn't matter so much. But I would argue that a name is actually very important. Uh, it's the first thing that you learn about a person when you meet them. Uh, and it's how you form your judgment about someone else. Uh, and usually that first piece of information forms the first judgment. And then every other judgment you build upon. Uh, and so that first piece of information is very important. It leans you in a positive or a negative direction. Um, and it really sets the stage for future interactions. So my parents had a great sense of humor. Uh, they would always tell me jokes when I was growing up. And uh, once my dad figured out how to use Facebook, every week I would get these like Arabic memes from him that he would then have to explain to me and why it's funny. Um, but <laughs> the funniest joke that my parents ever made was giving me my name. And they called me Rano. Uh, and I'll tell you why it's funny. Uh, so Rano is a Coptic word and it means beautiful. But my parents have never hesitated to tell me that I was an ugly baby. They even, at my wedding, the speech they gave, they spent half the time telling people I was an ugly baby. So <laughs> it was funny that they named me beautiful. Um, and uh, clearly I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but they must have known uh, that I would have had to explain this name every time I'd meet someone. They knew that this would sort of you know, make up the first 10 or 20 seconds of every new interaction I had with someone is explaining my name like, you know, hi, my name is Rano. Uh, what? What's that? Ronald? No, uh, Rano. Uh, is that your real name? Yeah, it's my real name. Uh, so it's not a nickname? No, it's not a nickname. Uh, what does it mean? It means beautiful. And then they look at me all suspicious and they're like, okay, nice to meet you, Ronald. <laughs> so a name says a lot. Okay, a name says a lot. And how does God introduce himself to us in the scriptures? So we heard one of them, which was Jehovah. But before Jehovah, God introduces himself right at the beginning of the scripture in Genesis 1.1 uh, as Elohim. Okay, and Elohim is a, a, a Hebrew term 
uh, that means strong one. And it was a term used for many of the pagan gods at the time, but God identified himself first and foremost as strong one. And then later in Exodus, he introduces himself to the, sorry, in Genesis, he introduces himself in the second account of creation as Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, and uh, that translates to Lord. And he later tells uh, the, it, the Jewish nation in Exodus to remember his name, Jehovah. So he wants to be remembered as Lord, like on a more personal level. Now, later on in Exodus, he gives the Israelites another name that he wants to be called by. So if we look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, God is speaking here to the Jewish nation and specifically to Moses. Uh, and he says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And when you read this, you say, what? His name is Jealous? Like, is that the name he picked? Like, why? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Like, I automatically, when I hear jealousy, I associate it with a negative trait. Um, it, like, just to go back to another Shakespeare reference, in Othello, we hear that jealousy is the green-eyed monster, right? It's a bad thing. So why would God name himself jealousy? So let's just put this in some context before we, you know, jump to conclusions. Remember, God is revealing himself to the Jewish nation and to us here. God is describing himself in a limited, inadequate vehicle, which is human language, okay? So when he's communicating with us in human language, God has to work with that, okay? He has to describe his unlimited, um, completely powerful, all-knowing, all-being self using this limited language. So that doesn't mean that um, when we interpret... So it, what it does mean is that when we interpret God through our language here we have to make allowances for who God is. So we don't try to limit God into the smallness of the words, but we try to stretch the words to fit God. And so to understand what God means here, let's take this in the context in which he says it and try to understand why he uses this word, jealous, as his name. So let's set the stage. The Jewish nation leaves Egypt, goes into the desert, they're freed from their slavery, and now they have approached Mount Sinai, and they enter into a covenant, a promise, between them and God. And the promise is that God will do something for them, and in return, they will do something for God, and that is to worship him exclusively. So Moses goes up into Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law, the commandments from God, which are part of the covenant. And while he's up there, the Jewish nation forgets about him, right? They say, he's not coming back. Let's just go at this on our own. And immediately they break the covenant, right? So they make this golden calf and they start to worship the golden calf. And while Moses is up there, you know, this commotion starts to happen. God says, okay, like, you know, these guys have already broken the covenant. I'm going to destroy them 
and I'll start a new nation with you, Moses. And Moses pleads with him and says, no, don't do it. And, and, and God agrees. Um, but Moses goes back down, gets really upset with the, with the Israelites and breaks the Ten Commandments that he's received from God. And now he has to go back up to Mount Sinai and get the covenant again. Okay? So he has to go back up and get the covenant again. But first, God wishes to reveal himself to Moses as part of the covenant so that Moses and the nation of Israel know who they're getting into this agreement with. Okay? And so he introduces the covenant the second time with this. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. So God is re-entering this covenant where he is making promises and he is telling them, this is who I am. I am merciful. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am forgiving. But I will also make sure that the guilty do not go unpunished. Okay? And in this context, he then tells them, be careful. Do not make a treaty with those who lived in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. So that's the context in which he tells them that his name is Jealous. Okay? It seems like he's trying to summarize everything he had told them previously when he picks that one word, jealous. And why jealous? Well, it sums up in one sort of emotion, the full weight of God. So God is jealous, yes, but not the same way that we are jealous, okay? Nothing about us is 100% perfect and nothing about God is less than perfect. So the jealousy of God is like human jealousy in some ways, okay? But the jealousy of God must also be unlike our jealousy in other ways because it is God. So whatever the jealousy of God is, it's a perfect jealousy. Uh, and here, it sort of sums up all these other things that he said, that he's merf merciful, compassionate, forgiving, but also he seeks justice. So let's talk about godly jealousy, okay? This jealousy that he uh, refers to here as his name. And let's talk about the definition of jealousy here. So in Hebrew, the word for jealousy, the noun in the Old Testament, means to become dark red, okay? <laughs> in the New Testament, the word, the same word, which is written in Greek, means to boil, okay? So it gives the same sense and it's translated into other words like zeal and jealousy, but it's used both when referring to God and to humans uh, to mean to boil over. Okay, so if you've ever like tried to make pasta and left it on the stove for too long, it like boils over. Okay, 
and and this uh, verse from Proverbs really sort of highlights that for us. It says, "For jealousy is a husband's fury." Okay, it's like the dark red, that emotion that you could describe as dark red. It's this deep, passionate emotion that is an overflow. It's it's like uh, a very strong emotion, primarily of possession. So the word jealous, as opposed to jealousy, which is the noun, jealous, um, in the Bible, in the Hebrew part of the Bible, is, is the word kana. And that word means, um, it's sometimes translated in other translations as zeal, okay? Or it is the zeal to protect a possession or a relationship. So when it says God is jealous, what it's really saying is God has a zeal. He has a deep desire to preserve and protect something that is precious to him. So let's be clear then. God isn't jealous of us. He's jealous for us. Okay? Now, now that we know why his name is jealous and what he's jealous for, which is us and to protect us, what's the result of God's jealousy? Okay, what is the, our natural response to this jealousy? So the first response is exclusivity. Okay, and the second response is zeal. And we'll get into exclusivity first. So jealousy, we said, is God's name. And it is kind of the essence of God, right? He can't be anything other than jealous. Because it's not a temporary thing for him. Because he's the highest and the greatest and uh, he's infinitely holy and glorious, he has to be zealous to preserve his honor and his supremacy. So he must desire exclusive devotion and worship from us. So to do less than that would make him less than God. And he even says about himself in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So if we say that God is faithful, then he has to be faithful to himself and maintain his high and his holy position. And he wants us to attribute to him that degree of honor. Basically, that is what he's saying when he says in Ezekiel, I shall be jealous for my holy name. So let's bring that a little bit closer to home with a practical example. Marriage is the perfect practical example of this. In a marriage, a husband and wife enter into a covenant together where they are going to be exclusive to each other and not committed to anyone else, only to each other. So if I'm married and my wife is dating other people, the only appropriate response that I could have to that is to be jealous, right? Because any other response to breaking of this exclusivity between us would mean that the marriage is meaningless, right? That there is no exclusivity. So God often refers to the covenant he made with the Jewish nation and that he makes with us through Jesus Christ as a marriage covenant for the same reason because we are to be exclusive to him and if he is not jealous then he denies that covenant he's no longer faithful to it 
And we can see here in James chapter 4, when James is trying to um, advise the people of God, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity to God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? So God shows a passionate zeal to protect us and to give us his spirit. That's how he is jealous and why he is jealous. Now, when you hear this, you think, well, God kind of sounds a bit insecure, right? If he's almighty and he's everything and he's omnipotent and all-powerful, why does he want us to worship only him? Why is he so insecure about our relationship with him? Why is he jealous? That's usually what we think of when we hear someone's jealous, right? Like, oh, I'm jealous that my wife is talking to another man. Like, why am I so insecure in my relationship? But it's not quite like that. God's jealousy isn't motivated by insecurity. It's motivated by the well-being of his people. So it's not like an inward jealousy of selfishness. It's an outward jealousy that's selfless. God knows that we will be insecure without him. And so that's why he's jealous for us. He knows that it's not good for us to be involved with anyone or anything other than him. So the first response that we have to God's jealousy is to be exclusive to him. Now the second response. The second response is zeal. So during Jesus' time, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life. God only came and encountered the nation of Israel in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. And so animal sacrifices were the only way that the people of Israel could be reconciled to God, and the only place they could offer those sacrifices was in the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So the temple had this monopoly on religion. And Jews from all over the world would come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and atone for their sins. Now, with this in mind, there were very specific criteria for sacrifices. You couldn't just offer up anything. You had to have a perfect sacrifice, a certain type of animal, they had to be without blemish, etc., etc., etc. There was all these very strict criteria. So if people are coming from all over the world, they're not going to be carrying their perfect, you know, lamb with them from Greece all the way to Jerusalem. And so people started selling these perfect sacrifices in the temple courtyard, just outside the temple, which is still part of the temple. Uh, and that way it became kind of like a one-stop shop. You'd show up, pick your perfect sacrifice, go in, offer your sacrifice for atonement, and you know, bim, boom, bam, you're done. But before you could buy that perfect sacrifice, you had to get temple dollars to buy the sacrifice. So you couldn't just use your own money. You had to first get special money only for the temple to use there. And so you had to exchange the money with the money exchangers who were there. And if you've ever looked at your credit card, anytime you exchange money, it costs something. And so, you know, there's a monopoly on 
where you could sacrifice, there's a monopoly on where you could get the sacrifice, and there's a monopoly on how you get the sacrifice. And you can imagine with that much monopoly, people were taking advantage. Okay, And that kind of sets the scene for what happens when Jesus goes into the temple and he gets angry. Right In, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus goes into the temple and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And in the Gospel of Mark, we hear a slightly, you know, slightly more detail to the story that Jesus went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. Christ's zeal here wasn't just a fit of rage. It wasn't something that like just happened, right? It was deliberate. It was almost sounds like it was planned. And it sounds like it actually took him some time to do it, right? You don't just go into the temple, drive out those who bought and sold, overturn the tables, uh, you know, throw their seats on the floor all in a split second. That takes time. There's a process. Um, and so Jesus is kind of laying out the blueprint for us here for how to have zeal, how to respond to God's jealousy with zeal. The first thing he does is he gets rid of what offends God, but he does it in a deliberate way and it's a process, okay? So there's a great story in the history of the church that illustrates what I mean. And it's the story of the 40 martyrs of Sebastian. So there's these 40 soldiers living in the year 320. Uh, and they were all from a region in Turkey called Cappadocia. And uh, they were members of this highly regarded Roman legion called the 12th Legion. And uh, the emperor at the time, his name was Licinius. And he was emperor of like the eastern part of the world. And then there was like a western part. And he was starting to get really worried because it seemed like the Western part was becoming very strong. Uh, and so he was becoming like increasingly more stressed out. And uh, he lashed out by having these very like oppressive policies, specifically against Christians. And so to like really solidify his strength and like really make a show of force against his own people, um, he called on everyone in his army to demonstrate their support for him by offering sacrifices to the pagan gods of the time. And so most of the legion that these 40 men were a part of, uh, they all, um, they all like complied as good soldiers would. Um, but the 40 Cappadocians, they were all Christians and they all respectfully declined. And they were all stationed um, like sort of uh, very south around the Black Sea or a city just south of the Black Sea. So it was a very cold area and it was wintertime. So for more than a week, they were placed under guard um, where they sang and they prayed together. And the captain pleaded with them 
Um, and he told them, like, you know, of all the soldiers who serve the emperor, uh, you know, we like you guys. And we don't want you to do something where we have to hurt you. So, you know, why don't you just turn our hatred back into love uh, and just do what you're told? And they replied to him. They said, we have made our choice. We shall devote our love to our God. So one night at sundown, they're stripped of their clothes and they're led out onto this frozen lake. Uh, And they're left there. And then they're surrounded by guards all around the lake. Um, And just to make it a little bit more uncomfortable for them, they have this Roman bathhouse, like a warm, steamy bathhouse, set up on the side of the lake so that if any one of them decides they're going to give up their faith, they can immediately go and warm up in the bathhouse. Um, And so uh, that night, they stand there all night, these 40 Roman soldiers naked in the freezing cold on a freezing lake, And they sing, 40 good soldiers for Christ, we shall not depart from you as long as you give us life. We shall call upon your name, whom all creation praises, fire and hail, snow and wind and storm. On you we have hoped and we are not ashamed. And as the night wore on, they kept singing this over and over, 40 good soldiers for Christ. And it got quieter and quieter because they were getting colder and colder. And then at midnight, something very interesting happened. One of the 40 staggered away from the lake and ran to the, the uh, bathhouse. And the song immediately changed. 39 good soldiers for Christ, so on and so on. And the jailer watches the man enter. One of the, one of the soldiers standing around watched this man enter the bathhouse and then immediately come out of the bathhouse and like just drop because he just couldn't handle that sudden transition from hot to cold. And then the next thing that happened was that same soldier immediately went and joined the people on the lake, took off his clothes and started yelling, 40 good soldiers for Christ. And so the number didn't change. They were still 40. Now, the next morning, of course, all 40 had expired. But when they were moving their bodies away, the captain came and recognized one of the guards was part of the 40. And he said, you know, what is he doing here? And the other guards replied, we can't understand it. But ever since those Christians came under his care, we noticed something different about him. So what this story illustrates is that these martyrs of Sebastian, they were zealous for God. They were zealous for the name of God and they didn't want to go against it. And their zeal was a long, drawn out, deliberate process. It didn't just happen like that. They went through it all night. And most importantly, their zeal had a profound impact on the jailer. So our jealousy for God, our zeal for God should also have a similar effect on the people around us. Now, to go back to that idea of how to carry out the zeal, we have to get rid of the things that offend God. And St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So, what are these things that offend God that we have to demolish? These are the idols in our life. 
And these idols can be anything. They can be every thought, every behavior, everything that I hold in high regard ahead of God. It could be something as simple as my comfort. So I have a confession. I'm often late to church. Okay, I'm often late to church, and it's not because I have something to do on a Sunday morning. I don't have a meeting. I, there's no traffic, except maybe next week. Uh, <laughs> the weather is usually fine. It's not the reason I'm late. It's usually because I'm sleeping. I hit the snooze button too many times. I stayed up too late the night before. Uh, and for me, that's an idol. It's something that um, comes in between me and God. It's something that I, on a Sunday morning, hold in higher regard than God. And so, in order for me to be zealous about tearing down this idol, I need to remember that I have to be deliberate and that it's a process. So how can I do that? Well, if it's going to be deliberate, then I have to make a plan. I'm not going to get over it by accident. There has to be a plan in place. So perhaps... The plan is that I should sleep earlier. Perhaps the plan is that I should set more than one alarm. Perhaps the plan is that I should make a plan with someone else that I pick them up and that forces me to be accountable to someone. And once I make that plan, it will then be a process to carry it out. Okay? So... let's remember that God is jealous for us to be exclusive to him and to be zealous. And in order to be zealous, we need to get rid of what offends God. We need to be deliberate about it. And it's a process. And now I understand the title. Because it's a process, we need to move it along. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We can stand and pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a very clear and simple process, Lord, for us to engage your jealousy. You are jealous for us, Lord. Like Rana was saying, if you weren't jealous for us, that would mean you wouldn't care. Like, John, I'd really like it if you worship me, but if you go and worship some other god, ah, go to hell. What do I care? That's not your attitude, Lord. You are jealous for me. You are jealous to have an exclusive relationship with me. You are jealous for me to break down the idols in my life and to worship you and you alone. You are jealous for me to discover how my job is worship of you and you alone. Not my boss, not my salary, not my vacation time, not my bonus, not my promotion, not my raise, not my lateral move, my horizontal move, my vertical move, my this move. It's all about you. How my school is not about marks. You've taken care of that already. It's not about my future. You've written that out already. It's just about you. My marriage is about you. My family is about you. My children is about you. My finances is about you. Thank you, Lord, for being jealous for me. Thank you, Lord, that you will accept no less standard than that I love you and worship you 
alone in all things that you may be my all in all. In your mighty name, Lord, we pray. We surrender ourselves to you. We beg the saints who figured it out, who figured out how to worship you always and in all things to give themselves to you. We beg their prayers, the prayers of St. Mary, the prayers of St. Moses, St. Catherine. Hear us, Lord, as we pray to you, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.